Well, guys, I I love reading biographies. Um, I get excited and I struggle to contain it when I when I read about inspirational people. And one of my all-time favourites is Nelson Mandela. Uh, but I just when I was writing that down, I just had a quick scan over the shelves at home, and I've got my office as well, but I just had a quick scan over the shelves at home this week. And you should see that I've got Jimmy Steins, um, Jimmy Carter. Um, did you ever read Katie Davis Majors or Neil Armstrong, um, Dr. Catherine Hamlin in Ethiopia, serving there till she's 96 years old as an obstetrician, gynecologist, um, Sir Alex Ferguson, considered like one of the greatest football soccer managers of all time. Um, and he has won more trophies than any other manager ever in history. I, I just love reading this. Did you ever read about Immaculate um, Illa Bagazia? I always find it hard to say her name. Illa Bagiza. Illa Bagiza. Um, my goodness. If you do, like, do you want me to tell you about her now? Surviving the 1994 genocide in Rwanda and seeing members of her family cold-bloodedly murdered in front of her with her own eyes. Um, and she hides in this fake closet, uh, which is really small, with six other people. They can't even lie down. Like, they're, they're all sitting up, and it's for three months. They can't come out. Like, and then she redeems this pure evil in a life now of international service and inspiration. <laughs> in, uh, biographies, man. General Peter Cosgrove is another one. He was the commander of the Interfet Force in East Timor, late 1999. And then he became the Australian Governor General. And he taught me a word in his biography, indefatigable. You heard of that? Indefatigable. He used it to describe the then Prime Minister, John Howard, when he had visited the Australian troops in, in Timor. Indefatigable. And, and that very word, inspires me indefatigable it means to persist tirelessly <laughs> like so people like high achievers people who make a difference people who change the world and and i don't even have a pie in the sky definition of what changing the world means either like i'm under, under no illusion it doesn't have to be something that's that's public and famous and known to change the world i'm convinced that there are world changes uh, that who hardly anybody knows about but i get inspired as long as i can remember for me i've desperately wanted to be a world changer of some sort but I never felt like I was. Worse still, like it was well-motivated fantasy for the first while, but then, you know, with one slip up after another and one non-acceptance and, and one more not-so-good exam result and then one nonchalant reaction to my awesome ideal and one more failure of my plan. After a while, I still wanted with all my being for my life to count and to amount to something. But to be frank, I, I never really thought it would. Always, always felt like a bit of a nobody. Did you? Like, did you? Hey, seriously, like, you, you heard having a, of Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher, because he said, and now he used 
gender exclusive language, but that was the way that they talked in ancient times. He's talking about people, not, not men. He said, let him who would move the world first move himself. <laughs> hey, seriously, could your life amount to anything? Anything much? Well, or are you just an ordinary guy, ordinary girl, and you're here? Like as one of my fellow detectives in the homicide squad used to say, he would say, you're just here to make up the numbers. The world changing is for everyone else, but not for you. See, many of us have got the tendency, haven't we, to think that we're nothing special and therefore that we're not really going to achieve any big purpose for our lives. And we can only marvel at the few who do seem special, but, but we're apparently not one of them. It's like me looking at the bookshelves. Marvel, inspired. But the result of that is that we're inclined to live ordinary lives, unremarkable lives. Do you reckon that's the way God wants it to be? Is it the way he designed it? If I asked you today, if I looked you in the eye and I compelled an honest response from you somehow, and I I said, hey, could God use you? Could he? Well, what would you say? No, no, Jeff. No, Jeff, he, he couldn't. Or he wouldn't. It's a closed shop for you. You're not, you're not angry about it, you're not traumatised, but you're just honest. Because, no, no, God couldn't. Or he wouldn't use you for anything significant. Or maybe you're a little bit less militant about it. And so you'd say, well, could God use me? Oh, honestly, probably not. Well, what do you think about the Pope? You think the Pope's a world changer? I mean, you know... The current Pope, Pope Francis, don't you? Like, well, maybe maybe you don't know him, but you know of him. Well, do you know where Pope Francis and all the popes before him got started? <laughs> it's a guy called Peter. And he's on the pages of our Bibles, and he, he's just a fisherman. Just a fisherman from... Bethsaida, it's right up on the northeastern tip of the Sea of Galilee. He, he's just a fisherman. And he's, and he's just a fisherman, that's all. He's grinding out a hard working living and he's not really rocking any world around him. Now, you're a nobody, aren't you? Well, you're not, you're not unlike Peter. Come, d- d- grab a look at him with me because he, he's just a fisherman. And you know what? If you if you get a look under the bonnet for Peter, you'll get a whole new feel. You will get a whole new feel for what it means to be a nobody who actually makes a difference. I, I know. Look, you want to hear this. I know you do. And, and honestly, so do I. You see, us people, we aim big and we shoot high. Like in ancient times, when the world was just getting going and the population was increasing, and next thing, and it says it in Genesis chapter 11, verse 3 in our Bibles, they're, they're talking, these people, they're talking about construction projects. They say, come, let's, 
Let's make great piles of burnt brick and collect natural asphalt to use as mortar. Let's build us a great city with a Eureka Sky Deck. Well, that, that part's not in the Bible, the Eureka Sky Deck. But, but with a Eureka Sky Deck, we, we want to we build a great city with a tower that reaches to the skies. It'll be a monument to our greatness. That's what they say. But, you know, even if you just skim the Bible, you'll see that God... God usually begins in secret and he works curiously in the lowest parts of the earth and he calls an individual and he trains her long and patiently and finally then he makes her his partner and, 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 and the, the, the centre of a new unit, the channel through which he pours himself out on the whole world. You check out the Bible. If you're a nobody, if you're just making up the numbers, it's going to grab you and lift your head up high. Because the majority of those, listen carefully, the majority of those who God's done great big things through have been selected from among the nobodies, the foolish, the weak, the broken, the despised rank of the human family. You see, God loves it that way. Because then when he does that, we don't get so mixed up about who's actually responsible for the good. Now, while Peter's, Peter is fishing for a living, he's just a fisherman based in Bethsaida, uh, which was, it's a no-frills town, and it's in striking contrast to Capernaum, which is not too far away, and had a fair bit, Capernaum had a fair bit of notoriety and wealth and high-end clientele. But for Peter then, the world in that time has started to change a bit and words started circulating these last few years that the times may be getting near. It might even be here when God would send his chosen one, the Messiah, literally the Christ. These Jewish people, like they knew their Bibles or their, or their Torah. They knew all the prophecies out of what we would call the Old Testament of our Bibles. And they were expecting the Messiah to come and, and set them free and restore the kingdom to Israel. And even though word's been getting around, then along comes John. And they call him John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And he's baptizing people. Lots of people. Like it's like a it's like a factory. And he's making provocative comments as he does it. Things like saying this: repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there are hordes of people and they're streaming down south from the Sea of Galilee and there are multitudes of them being baptised by John. Now, somehow, what we know is that Peter from Bethsaida, he turns up there as well. He, like he's away from home. He's just a fisherman and, and we know that he's strong too. Like he's strong-willed, he's vehement, he's impulsive, he's self-assertive. And he gets angry really quick and really easy. Not the sort of guy that you'd pick for the first pope. Just, just quietly. You read about him in all four of the Gospels in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you read John the baptizer is baptizing people. And, and like I said, it's like a factory. And not only does Peter turn up and his brother Andrew, but somehow... So does Jesus himself. And Jesus gets baptised by John. 
Check out this map. Like, check out this map and you'll see what I mean. It's in John chapter 1. It's the day after John baptizes Jesus. Can you see there on the map, like Jesus is baptized at a place called Bethabara. And it's down south of the Sea of Galilee. Peter's there, Andrew's there, they're a long way from home, and Jesus turns up and gets baptized. It's the day after, and and John's standing there. It says in John chapter 1, he's got two of his own disciples. It's normal for someone like John to have disciples in Jewish culture. And right then, Jesus walks past them. Um, And John says to his disciples, hey, look, there's the Lamb of God. And these guys look as Jesus keeps walking. And what we then know is that these two disciples, and Andrew is one of them, Andrew from Bethsaida, they start walking after Jesus. And they, they, they say to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi means teacher. Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see, he says. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon. So they go see where he's staying and they hang out with him for the rest of the day. And the very first thing that Andrew does after that evening with Jesus is he goes and finds his brother, Simon. Simon Peter, that's the fisherman. That's the fisherman from Bethsaida. And Andrew finds him and he tells him, hey, 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 whoa, we've found the Messiah. And then he brings Simon Peter to introduce him to Jesus. This is in John chapter 1, verse 42. It says, and Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Then listen to this, just Just listen to this. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you will be called Cephas. And that means Peter. Interesting, you know, that's that's an Aramaic name, Cephas. And it's the same as the Greek name, Peter. And both of those words, Aramaic and Greek, they both mean rock. You, my fisherman friend, are a rock. (laughs) Hey, I don't feel like a rock. Like a rock is solid. Rock's strong. It's not easily moved. It's firm. It's sound. It's stable. You tell, you tell Jeff Shepherd that he's a rock and he might not believe you. So the next day then, Jesus leaves Bethabara there and he heads up northwest of there to the region of Galilee. And specifically he's heading for Cana. Because we know he ends up at a wedding there. And guess who goes with him when he leaves? to walk up there. Simon, Peter, Cephas, rock. Just a fisherman. Friends, this is the way Jesus does it. You know, Jesus chooses ordinary people. When the heart is broken and contrite, you know, like Peter's, Jesus speaks words of encouragement and cheer. Like he gives his righteousness where there's even a speck of faith. 
He doesn't, he doesn't look for someone who's advanced or good or mature or achieved. He just looks for followers. Seriously, seriously, he chooses ordinary, ordinary people. God delights in using very ordinary people for world-changing purposes. You, you rewind from that story centuries, centuries. Israel, they got their first ever king in place, but he hasn't started well and he's not correcting with a few warnings and he's not going to finish well. His name's Saul. So God tells us through the prophet Samuel that he's rejected this king. He's rejected Saul because he hasn't started, he's not correcting, he's not going to finish well. He's rejected him as king and he's chosen someone new and, and he says it in this way, he says, it's a man after my own heart. And this is the person who's going to replace Saul. Saul's still the king, but hey, I've rejected him, God says, and I'm going to replace him. And so he sends Samuel the prophet to Bethlehem and he tells him, he says, there you're going to find a man whose name is Jesse. And then all he says is, um, go find Jesse because I've selected one of his sons to be the next king of Israel. So Samuel goes, he gets to Bethlehem, and Jesse and his sons are there. Well, we actually find out later most of his sons, not all of them. And, and, and we, we, we don't like his people. As soon as you, you know, I mean, you're looking for a new king, for crying out loud. You're going to check experience and qualifications and character references, patterns of behavior. We check the CV, don't we? So first son, like first son, Iliad, he fronts up and Samuel thinks straight away. He sees this guy and he thinks, he actually says, surely this is the Lord's anointed one. And you know what? God says, uh, God says this. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Grab this verse, friends. Grab this verse and highlight it. Highlight it. The Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or by his height. Because I've rejected him. The Lord, he goes on to say, doesn't make decisions the way that you do. People judge by outward appearances. But the Lord looks at a person's thoughts and intentions. So Jesse then, like he, he gets the next son in. Um, but no, God says, no, it's not him either. And the next and the next and the next. And they go through all seven sons. And Samuel himself is confused. And, and so he says to Jesse, like, is this... Is this all the sons that you've got? Well, Jesse sort of looks around and he's scratching his chin. And he says, well, there is still the youngest. But like, he's out in the field watching the sheep. Like he's just a shepherd boy. And go get him says Samuel, go get him. And they do. And you know what? This shepherd boy is the new king of Israel. This kid. 
I can never get over that story. David, nobody, no, nobody, 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 shepherd boy. He's just sent out to do the job that in that culture, in that setting, no one else wants to do and no one else will do. And it's, it's like he's not even included as one of Jesse's sons. He doesn't, like he doesn't even get to submit his resume. And, you know, it says in Psalm 78, verses 70 and 71, it's talking about this. It says that God chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens of all places, like the despised, disrespected, disrespected and despised, stinky, smelly, out-of-the-way sheep pens. He took David, it says in Psalm 78, he took David from tending the ewes and lambs and made him the shepherd of God's, sorry, made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. Friends, like David woke up that morning and looked after sheep. And that's the day that God turned up to make him king. You better believe it. Jesus chooses ordinary people. God delights in using very ordinary people for world-changing purposes. Ruth, she is a foreigner. She's an unfortunate widow. She's got no rights and no obvious future. Like that's the way that a widow is in that setting. She falls down at the feet of the guy who God will actually, she doesn't know it yet, but God's going to give her this guy as her husband. And she actually says, it's in Ruth chapter 2, verse 10 in your Bible. She says, why? Why are you being so kind to me? I am only a foreigner. Like she is. She is only a foreigner. But you read the story then, and that doesn't stop God giving her an awesome husband. And you know what? Actually making Jesus the Messiah, her direct descendant. Friends, God delights in using very ordinary people for world-changing purposes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 26 to 29 to you. It says this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world. Like that shepherd boy out in the field, forgotten about as one of the sons looking after the sheep. Like some widow foreigner on a path to nowhere. Like the student from Mill Park. Like the mechanic from South Morang. Like the invalid pensioner from Epping. Like the, like the pensioner who thinks that he's in the twilight years of his life. God chose things despised by the world. 
things counted as nothing at all. And he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. So that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. You make no mistake, God delights in using very ordinary people for world-changing purposes. And he doesn't just choose ordinary people. You know, another thing that he does is, Jesus speaks of what is not as though it were. Say it again. Say it, say it again. Because that he speaks of what is not as though it were. You see, Jesus speaks into being possibilities that we never supposed ourselves to be capable of. Over the grave of our hope, he speaks words of resurrection and life. Hey, Simon, hey, Simon, your, your name, my friend, your, your name's not Simon, your name's now Peter, and you, my friend, are a rock. And you know, later he says to Peter, you're not just a rock, but you're a rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, you know, like I'm using my laptop at home and, and, and the low battery warning comes up and then I concentrate on slowly, methodically connecting it up. And, and I often think to myself, my laptop doesn't know right now that I'm working on it. Like it only knows it's got power once the power is plugged into the laptop at one end and then the power point at the other end and then the power is switched on. But, but the laptop's got no idea at all that I'm doing my best at the moment and it's, 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 got, it's got no concept of waiting on me. So if the battery runs out before I get it connected, bad luck. It's off. I mean, my laptop has either got power or it hasn't. There's no middle ground. Jesus, though, like he speaks of what is not as though it were. So he knows when you're trying to make sense of it all. And it's not quite working yet. He sees every skerrick of work that you're putting in to be the dad that he wants you to be. And yet you still fail. He gets, like he gets it when you, you, you sleep in and you miss on the special quiet time sitting at his feet he gets that and he gets your, your doubts and confusion about him and his existence and his being god especially in times of suffering and pain and hardship you know like he, it's like he's like a laptop that can see you scurrying around and getting the power cord ready and connected and it's like that's enough for him he won't shut down on you You see, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, this famous chapter in the Bible, it says, what's faith? Faith is the confident assurance, listen to this, that what we hope for is going to happen. The confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It's the evidence of things we cannot yet see. God delights in using very ordinary people for world-changing purposes. And you know, when Jesus looks at you, go, go looking, you see how many times he renames people in the Bible. He gives them a new identity. He gives them a new place, a new call. You see, when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't 
Honestly, honestly, he doesn't see your limitations and your shortfalls and your naughty weaknesses. And he doesn't even consider your class or your status or your wealth or your fame or your eloquence or your intelligence or your presentation or your clothes or your house or your anything. When he looks at you, he sees you the way that he's going to make you. If only you'll say yes and let him. You see, God delights in using very ordinary people for world-changing purposes. And one more thing that Jesus does, you know, he, he uses Peter as an example for us. Like, he'll do anything for you to know this. He, like, he doesn't want you hoodwinked by your own doubts and fears or by the lies of the enemy. He doesn't want you swept up into a storm of fear and wild emotions. Like, he doesn't want you thinking and talking in alignment with the enemy. Because all the enemy, we're talking about Satan, the devil, all Satan wants for you, listen carefully to this, all he wants is to distract you and to derail you and to destroy you. The devil is radically committed. And I mean radically committed to you believing that you're insignificant and that you're just ordinary and that you, and then you are just a fisherman. Or you're just, I'm just out of work at the moment. I'm just a casual. I just go to TAFE. I'm just whatever. I, I know a guy, Tuck. That's what we call him, Tuck. John Tucker is his name, to be correct. And he's a builder. He's just... Just to build a tuck. He's quiet. He's unassuming. He's as strong as an ox, this guy. But he's just a builder. He's a year or two older than me. He's been a builder as long as I've known him. He's a Richmond supporter as well. But honestly, though, like he's just a builder. And when I called him to ask, if I could tell you about him today. <laughs> he said, Jeff, can I call you back in half an hour? I'm knee deep in concrete. We're just pouring a slab. I said, yeah, sure, tuck. Because of all the people I know in the flesh, tuck's right up there, friends, with his key contribution to the good news of Jesus on earth, in what he gives, in how he gives, and in all that he does, and he's done it for years on end for Jesus' work in the Philippines, um, his real life investment in the lives of countless men in his eastern suburbs church, and his lifelong commitment and devotion to being an honest, faithful, content husband and dad and father-in-law. And Peter's like that too, like he's just a fisherman. And, and Jesus wants you getting into Peter's life. These next few weeks here at Mill Park Baptist Church, he wants you getting into this, this life, uh, zoned in on this, on this guy who's just ordinary, but he's hot-headed and he's strong-willed. He's a shoot-from-the-hip sort of guy. You and I, we'd never make him Pope. But he lets Jesus get hold of him and he becomes the rock on which Jesus builds his church.
God delights in using very ordinary people for world-changing purposes. God, he chooses and uses nobodies. Like you. <laughs> like me. Do you want him choosing you? Do you want him using you? You may not. But if you do, i, I got some really practical suggestions for you. First, here's the first one. Set your mind on becoming. You know, more than just belonging. You know, we talk about that as a church, don't we? To belong. Um, and more than even then just believing. But becoming who Jesus wants you to be. You set your mind on that. And second one, dig deep into God's word. Like, like go gold mining. I, I mean, go looking, go searching. I, you know, I talked to another guy this week. This, this man, Rob, his name is. He's the key mentor in my life. I've known him for more than 35 years now. He's in his 70s. And so we, we, we met up this week. We were on FaceTime together. Spent an hour and a bit together. And you know, Rob, he always does this when I meet with him. Um, it's not like he's mentoring me. It's He drilled me for much of our conversation with questions. But they were questions about the things that he's learning from the Bible at the moment. And he wanted to know my thoughts and ideas. It, like it, It's not like he's not trying to use something to teach me. Like He actually wants to learn from me. So this week he was asking me all about you know a couple of, couple of topics, and then he texts me the next morning. Hey, thanks. That was that was a really helpful chat. See this guy always, always, always digging deep into God's word so he can grow. So I want to suggest you do that. Like set your mind on becoming. Dig deep into God's word, and and here's the final one: stand up to the evil one's lies. His rubbish that he gives you, his propaganda. Tell him that you're rejecting his lies. You tell him. You liar, Satan. I'm not a nobody. I'm a child of God. And you see, this is the real big reason that Jesus came to earth, friends. And he lives, and in those first 30 years of his life, he becomes a carpenter. He's just a carpenter. And then, you know, we, we hear this language, Jesus used it himself, and we know that, that at the end of his life, like, he didn't have his life taken from him. The people thought they were taking his life from him, but he actually gave his life. Given, not taken. And he died on the cross, literally, to put on his shoulders and to take on his shoulders the weight and the responsibility and the punishment for your sin and my sin. And sin, you know, that, that nature that we have that means we cannot be friends with God. We can't be friends with God now. We can't live now the way that he's designed us to live. And we can certainly not live that way in the future. And we can't have eternal life with God because we've got a sin nature, which, which just, it, it makes us enemies of God. Might not feel like an enemy, but we are with our sin nature. So he, Jesus dies on the cross 
this, this carpenter from Nazareth. He's just a carpenter. And he dies on the cross to give you and me the opportunity to accept his free gift. So you took the punishment for you, for me. I'll, I'll accept that. And now I'll surrender my life to you. And when I do, I'll just, I'll just watch in wonder as you transform it from me being just a fisherman and just a student and just a mechanic and just an out of work nobody and just an invalid pensioner and just a sick patient and and just a just an unremarkable single mum and just a teacher and just a plumber and just a builder and just a policeman. You see, Jesus actually dies to take that life and to transform it from being just that to changing the world. And in Peter's case, we're going to see this for the weeks to come, like just a fisherman, and he becomes the rock on which Jesus builds his church. Hey, my friend, you know what? Like the most important thing that could ever happen for you is to know Jesus. So, hey, when I tell you that he died on the cross to give you the opportunity to accept his free gift and to have your life transformed as you surrender to him. I want to call out to you today and ask you, hey, you want to, you want to follow Jesus? You want to follow Jesus? Hey, if you do, if you do, you know what? Um, we're here for for no higher purpose than to help you follow Jesus. Love to pray with you. Love to chat with you. Um, anyone from our church who loves Jesus, not just one of the staff, anyone from our church who loves Jesus would love to. Because to know and to meet Jesus is the most significant thing that could ever happen in your life. Hey, And if you already know him, then for you to say, yep, Jesus, take my life. Use it. You won't be just a nobody. Um, very, very clearly, friends, God delights in using very ordinary people for world-changing purposes. Thanks. God bless you.